Hello, my name is Scott Cameron. This is the Joys of Teaching Literature. We're talking all things high school English and uh, novels, poems, short stories, all those really exciting things. And um, if you want to know more about me, my website's theteachersworkshop.com. I offer online professional development for high school English teachers. Um, in the courses, you can download a bunch of my materials, and I kind of have a screencast where I walk you through the different resources I use in my room and how I basically try to make my life easier, make my students' lives easier. Actually, it's interesting because I, I just got off Zoom call tonight uh, for back-to-school night, and that's basically what I feel like I was trying to tell my parents. It's like I'm trying to make this act of reading the most pleasurable activity possible because I want students to, to read for the rest of their lives and always be excited about picking up a book and um, the skills that I that I teach my students. I hope that they they always take notes like I try to tell them to take notes and organize their thoughts in a way before they write and make sure they have enough evidence before they write because that's so essential and all the different life skills we teach them doesn't need to be this overwhelming stressful thing where we're throwing around terms that are, are really difficult to understand and so that, that kind of brings us to this topic today um last week was the thesis statement and that's another one of those terms that can be really intimidating and challenging and you know we just talk about so much that we place so much emphasis on it there's all this stress surrounding like what goes into a thesis statement this week's topic is prosody so that's another thing that I, you know i have a <laughs> i think there is a certain kind of academic rite of passage if you will to get really confused about scanning a line of poetry i know i got frustrated with it and you know especially because you typically get it in the context of say a sonnet where it's iambic pentameters you know shakespearean sonnet or something like that and you're like okay so i kind of know that this is iambic pentameter and so you you read it <laughs> like in this weird sing-songy voice thing where you're reading it and kind of singing it you know and trying to get the beats and yeah you know, I, you know I, I never had a clear idea of what like how to actually determine i always felt like somebody else was doing it better than me or that the poet had some deep understanding of why a particular syllable would get a stress and, and why a particular syllable wouldn't get a stress um and you can sort of drive yourself crazy trying to trying to figure it out and trying to f what i was doing was trying to force a rhythm on the language um and creating this kind of unnatural beat when I was doing so, trying to figure out like there's got to be iambic pentameter knock be you know knocking around somewhere inside these sentences, and I can just if I could just kind of beat it out of it, um, I'll be fine. But but that you know I I was never really taught that that's not how it works. How it works is that you just read the line, <laughs> right? You read the line with the emotion that is in the line. And, and the emotion that the, the speaker is, is trying to convey through the different images and symbols and figurative language. And of course, there's so many different things going on with poetry to keep track of. A, you know, even today in class, we went through uh, the fly by will. I always start with, with something simple. So we started, well, it's, I say simple, it's simple to read, but really challenging to kind of think about and analyze. William Blake's The Fly. And, uh, we sort of marked the whole thing up and we had all these annotations, different things that we said about the poem, the parallel structure, the repetition, the um, metonymy in there. There's a synecdoche in there. 
It's all this different figurative language. You know, if, if thought is life and, and breath and uh, strength and breath is the one line. Um, so we're talking about how that's a metaphor and that's sort of extended metaphor because each of those things, life is, you know, breath and strength and all these different things. Um, and the want of thought is death. You know, so it's just a lot to, to kind of sink your teeth into. Um, so in addition to all of those different things, we, we went through literally line by line and that's how poetry works. Almost every line has something. And then you know, e- even in the fly, there's there's parallel structure um, with that line and then dance and drink and sing. So you have these sort of conjunctions separating the different parts of the line. And so the dance, drinking and singing corresponds with the, you know, the breath and the strength and all that. And so, you know, once you get through all that, then you also have to worry about the rhythm. And by the time we got to the rhythm, I couldn't even mark up the poem anymore because there was no more space to put the uh, the markings on there. And actually, I don't use markings, which I'll talk about in a second. I use numbers. Uh, Alfred Korn has this has this methodology for it, which I'll, which I'll talk about. But so by the time we got to the rhythm part, and it's interesting because we did the meaning first and then we went back and we're like, okay, so what's the rhythm of this poem? We know it's an iambic dimeter. We know that that pattern breaks in the first line of the first stanza, the first line of the second stanza, first line of the third stanza, third line of the fourth stanza, and then the second and fourth line of the last stanza. And so what does that say about the life of a fly, about the predictability of, of, of you know, of not having any power and being insignificant being a child and, and having your life sort of spiral out of control and so and, and not being able to, to dictate your own direction in life and have a plan for yourself and have hopes and aspirations and dreams and you're sort of locked in this uh, in somebody else's expectations with this blind thoughtless hands kind of walk, you know swatting you away and then and so then we talk about those lines and then we look at the rhythm and we're looking at the shortness of life of a fly. And we're talking about the quick movement of the fly and how the fly can't move anywhere. And so the rhythm is, it's, it's, it's so amazing because it's not, you're not stretching and saying, oh, well, there's no way that the author was thinking of it. You know how kids get. No, no, there's no way the author was thinking about all of that when he was writing it. Um, but, but the way that I kind of talk about it is like, all right, think about this. And you know, if you're a filmmaker, um, because it is like a lot of jargon, right? You know, trochaic, tetrameter, catalectic was the was the pattern that we found in, in the tiger. It's like, all right, that's a mouthful, right? So, but let's step back for a second, right? When you're talking about a filmmaker, you don't you don't talk about okay, they got this light over here and it's shining on this particular angle where it hits the the window and it, you know there's shadow over here and, and you don't see what's in the background and maybe somebody's back there, right? And so that establishes suspense and um, you know, you don't think all that. You're just, when you watch a movie, you get scared. <laughs> that, it's just that simple. You're not thinking about the technique behind why you're scared. You just are scared, and that's that. And so poets function on that level too, where they're doing all these things that, that we're not consciously aware of as we're reading something, but they're there in the background to, to kind of um, just to sort of, emphasize their point and in, in some cases it goes so much further than emphasizing their point because you actually in a lot of cases especially with romantic poets you can you there's an added extra meaning and sometimes an ironic something something ironic comes out of this the rhythm 
where you expect a certain rhythm but then get a different one. So you expect, to say, some fall, falling image because it's water falling or whatever it is, but yet the, the rhythm rises. Uh, say it's like an anapest, and so it's rising. And so you're like, well, why, when I'm reading about falling water, am I getting this anapest, right? So, you know, there's all these different sort of ways that, that poets play with, with the meaning of the poem when they establish their, the rhythm. And again, you know, when we read a poem, it's what we decide, it's how we decide to read it. So we're listening for our own stresses, for our own accents on certain syllables because we believe that a certain word is strong or if we think the character is angry, then we're going to read it like they're angry or if they're telling a secret or if they're thinking about something, then we're going to say it slowly and, 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 and you know, so there's going to be all kinds of different reasons that we just read it the way we do. So when we when we scan a line, we're just looking for how we read it. We're not looking at you know necessarily how you know the poet obviously has their own things in mind for the for the rhythm, but it is about just what we think is important. And that way, it's important exercise because you're you're asking the student what do you think is important? Like why is that word more important than the other? Um, and so it's, it's sort of a valuable process because you're, you're getting them to think about the meaning of the poem when you're getting them when you're just asking them to mark it up with stress and unstressed syllables. Um, the poet hides away from our conscious minds until we reread and take some time to analyze all the techniques, or, or really to put it away in another way, uh, to soak in the poet's playfulness with language. And that's really the, when you say when I use I rarely use the word wordsmith, but that's what a wordsmith is just a master of everything that language can do. And so rhythm is is one of the more intricate and complicated things, um, and it speaks to just all these unconscious desires that we have um, for rhythm in our own lives. Um, we try to keep track of, of where they follow the rules because that's rhythm is to some extent, you know, depending on the time of the, the writer, is about following the conventions of traditional poetry. Um, so, so where they establish the rhythm is important and what rhythm they pick is important, but it's also very important where they create variations and, and they stray from that pattern. And that's really where um, our, our tension is because we're, we're thinking like, why did they break that rule at this moment? And where, what are they saying at this moment of the poem about perhaps the status quo or you know, some, maybe some behavior that they kind of expect but they didn't get uh, through someone that they are in love with or whatever the case may be. Um, the greatest musicians, filmmakers, painters, know how and when to break the rules they they know they're masters of of you know the angles and and the, the techniques to make it look realistic say if you're a painter or to sound pleasing if you're a musician but where you kind of insert you know bob dylan i guess was a master of this because he was able to <laughs> he didn't overproduce anything he was really from his gut um and, and maybe that got him in trouble sometimes with some people but you know, he was a great rule breaker. He, he kind of sang, sang it just how he felt it and not how it was pleasing to most ears, right? Picasso did the same thing. You could argue certain athletes like, like Allen Iverson, who's kind of the master of all of that. He's, I think he's one of the greatest athletes of all time because he obviously had, had the game down. He knew how to get the ball in the net and shoot and all that. Um, but he was also super quick, so he was able to, even though he was short and a lot smaller than most of the players on the court, 
he was able to work his way out of sticky situations and get a good pass off or get a shot off that you didn't expect. He was do, always doing unexpected things. And so he was breaking the rules of, of what people expected from, you know, a guard. And that's how he ended up scoring on you every time. <laughs> and so, uh, so it's interesting sports work that way too. Um, a broken rule grabs our attention and makes us think about the rules and, and why they are rules. And so, we're, you know, that's rhythm is, is, is always getting us to challenge um, what it is we're familiar with, what it is we expect, which is, again, the rhythm that the poet establishes, but also, uh, again, not just the moment that they're breaking the, the rhythm, but also what they're saying at that moment um, and, and what they're saying about uh, reality as we know it and, and what we expect from reality. Um, so that's the moment we, that it gets our attention is when he breaks it. Um, but, but, you know, on a lot of different levels and different poems, there's a couple we just did where it was about like the, the surprises in life, right? So if, if the, the rhythm is predictable and then there's a variation, that means there's a surprise somehow, right? Like, so if, you know, if it's trees or water or whatever it is, um, or even a character's behavior, if there's like sort of logical progression, uh, to where a character is going, the rhythm might reflect that too. Uh, in the same way, trochees, anapas, dactyls might become symbolic of a speaker's assertiveness and confidence. Or, on the other hand, right, if, if the line, this happens in Hamlet a lot, where if the line ends with an uh, unstressed syllable, that means that they actually have a lot of uncertainty and fear and they don't know what they're going to do next and they're not sure why, what's happening, the Ophelia and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, all these people in their life. In, in Hamlet's life, uh, are causing him to sort of have all this self-doubt about, you know, the nature of his relationships and who to trust and who not to trust. Does he trust the ghost? Does he trust Claudius, his mother, Gertrude? What does she know, right? And so a lot of the lines that end on an unstressed syllable express those doubts. But when he's you know, sees Fortinbras, uh, you know, and he sees Fortinbras taken over Denmark, eventually Fortinbras takes over the country <laughs> while all this, you know, all these scandals are unfolding in the domestic uh, politics of the country. Uh, you know, then he's confident that what he's doing is the right thing to do and he's got to get revenge on his father. So those lines, some of those lines have stresses at the end um, and, and that's why they have those uh, stress syllables at the end. Um so yeah, where I get my so as far as how to teach this, it's um, I have a section in my course where I go over uh, all my different methods. But basically, I read the, this book called The Poem's Heartbeat: A Manual of Prosody by Alfred Korn, and, and it's genius because he, yeah, he actually argues that there's probably really four different stresses instead of the traditional two that we're used to with the little kind of smiley face without <laughs> without without eyeballs in the I guess the forward slash there. Um, and so he uses uh, ones, twos, and threes. And for students, this is brilliant because I say off the bat, first of all, this is about what you can argue. It's not necessarily, you know, I can argue with you and maybe I have a better answer than you do. Or maybe, you know, the writer of this book might ha have some, you know, issues with why you put a stress on a certain syllable. But really, it's about how you understand the emotion of the character. That's number one. It's about relativity, number two. It's about how this syllable is uh, longer or louder sounding than the syllables around it. It's not necessarily that this one particular syllable always gets a one or two or three. It's that, you know, uh, 
it gets a one or two or three because it's next to a particularly long syllable or a particularly short syllable. Um, and so, so when they're not sure of what the syllable gets, right, um, a weak or strong stress, that was my, that was my problem. Like, ah, which one does this get? I'm, I have to pick one, and if I pick the wrong one, it's going to be a disaster. Um, and so if you just say, hey, if you're not sure, give it a two, um, then when they get, then look at the line as a whole, they can see like, okay, here's some IMs, one, two, one, three, one, three, one, two, that's four IMs, that's iambic tetrameter, right? And so the, the IMs are either one, three IMs or one, two IMs. So you can kind of figure out what kind of IM it is. Uh, in addition to this, there are easy rules of thumb to follow uh, that help students in the book, that help students argue whether they think the syllable gets a stress or not. So while these terms can be, seem intimidating for students, the reality is that we all kind of constantly long for rhythm all around us. We listen to music whenever we get the chance, revel in the sounds of waves crashing, and look for it in sports where we hope the timing works out for the team we cheer on. You know, that one thing easily leads to another. You know, you take these steps and it'll get you to the end zone, um, you know, you place your arms in the water this way, one after the other at the right time, and you'll win the race, that sort of thing. Um, the study of rhythm it is not about arbitrary literary technicalities. When we make choices about how to read poems out loud, we do it to pay homage to the emotions behind the story, the anger, the embarrassment, the regret, the wonder, the grief, or the joy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>